I'm Alina Utrada, and this is The Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. For the second episode of the podcast, I sat down with Andrew Granato to talk about the so-called philosopher king of Silicon Valley, Peter Thiel. I first met Andrew when we were classmates as undergraduates at Stanford University, where he published some incredible articles with the Stanford Politics magazine, some of which were picked up by national outlets. One of Andrew's most notable pieces was an 11th month long investigation into Peter Thiel's influence and legacy at Stanford. As an undergraduate, Thiel had set up the highly controversial student publication called the Stanford Review. You may know Thiel as one of the original co-founders of PayPal, nicknamed the PayPal Mafia, or one of the co-founders of the data analytics firm Palantir. Thiel was also one of the first outside investors in Facebook and the first high-level tech executive to come out in support of Donald Trump in 2016. Andrew and I sat down to discuss Peter Thiel's politics, what they reveal about how he thinks about his business practices, and how he shapes and influences politics in Silicon Valley and beyond. Hi, everybody. We're so excited because we're here with Andrew Ganato, who is one of my classmates at Stanford University, um, where he majored in economics. Um, and since then, Andrew has gone off into the world. He's now a one Yale, a one L at Yale Law School. Um, and we're so excited to have him on to talk about um, one of our <laughs> favorite people, which is Peter Thiel. Um, yeah, so thanks for having me on. Um, so maybe we could just like start by like giving like a very brief introduction for people who like don't know who Peter Thiel is or like maybe have just sort of heard of him in the back of their mind like who is he and how did you first hear about him and and get interested in him yeah so the the rabbit hole runs deep I would say so <laughs> so Thiel was uh like an undergrad at Stanford in the late 1980s and he also attended law school there uh, and he, while he was an undergrad, founded this campus kind of like conservative slash contrarian student publication that still exists, and it's called the Stanford Review. And so it was one of like several conservative student publications that have like gained some degree of like fame over the years. The Dartmouth Review has also gotten a lot of notoriety, like Dinesh D'Souza and Laura Ingram both came out of there. Um, and so Teal specifically became really famous because after he graduated, he became a serial entrepreneur and he's now a, a venture capitalist. And so he is the co-founder of PayPal. He co-founded Palantir. He was the first outside investor in Facebook. Um, he is like a, a founding partner at Founders Fund. He's affiliated with multiple other VC firms. He's been an investor in, you know, God knows how many companies uh, definitely, you know, several of the the more recent crop of of billion dollar Silicon Valley companies, and so he's he's just kind of everywhere uh, in in Silicon Valley. Uh, but at the at the same time 
that he is definitely like an institutionally very important figure in Silicon Valley. He also like cuts this like very distinctive profile where he he's like not content to just be like a random rich guy, you know, who just like has a lot of money and, you know, just like, you know, hangs out on his yacht and like, you know, sits around in, in Atherton and, you know, eats like, you know, like thousand dollar sushi rolls or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> but he, profile, the Silicon Valley elite. <laughs> uh, yes. And he, um, so he, he is very involved with like differing and kind of increasingly radical strains of conservative politics. Like he, like he's a, was a libertarian for a really long time. Uh, he might still identify as a libertarian, but, but it's been kind of increasingly uh, clear that he's interested in a lot of other things. He was one of the first people to publicly back Trump above everybody else in kind of the, the business community and in technology in particular. Uh, and so he's just kind of had a lot of influence over the years on a lot of different strands of both the technology industry as a sector, as well as a lot of kind of the, the conservative leaning aspects of the tech industry's politics. Mm -hmm. So how did you first get like interested in, in Peter Deal? So I, I would read about him like in the news for, for like one reason or another. Um, like he like donates a lot of money to various political candidates. He, you know, got no, notorious in a lot of ways for uh, this bizarre and ultimately successful plan to uh, make Gawker, the website, go bankrupt. Um, but when I was an undergrad, the I just like knew of the Stanford Review. Like I would read it like fairly regularly. It was like a presence on campus. A lot of people on the like liberal leading campus would always be, you know, like outraged at whatever whatever latest thing came out about like <laughs> I, I recall. <laughs> yeah, about uh, like affirmative action or like ethnic themed dorms or, or whatever like the issue of the day was. And so like what. I got interested in was I was gonna like go and look at these old archives that um, that are in this like I can't remember the name of it. It's like some archive that has the old issues of the review that has like Peel's articles from back in the day, uh, and then that article kind of like spiraled uh, <laughs> into into like a much like longer like exploration of how the review works because he has has been very active over the years in recruiting people from the review to work at his companies. And so if you like join the review and you become the editor in chief in particular, like there's a pretty strong probability that you can get like an internship or get hired at a, a firm that is like kind of part of his portfolio. And then you can kind of enter this, this realm of Silicon Valley where he is this like, like Don of, <laughs> uh, this like small like kind of like counter network in in like the tech industry. So the review is interesting. I was rereading your article and how like some people would say like the review has been called conservative and then some people I think you said it when you were describing it that it's just almost it's more contrarian than anything. So I guess like how how would you describe you know, sort of this is related to the review, but like, how would you describe Peter Thiel's like political ideology? Like, like you said, it's sort of libertarian. It's sort of like he, he was a Trump supporter. I don't know if that necessarily makes him a Trumpist. 
Um, but it's also kind of almost anti-statist. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's a bit bizarre, but like, how, how would you characterize his, his political ideology and his, his political thoughts? So I think like definitely through at least the 90s and into the 2000s, he would describe himself as a libertarian. So like there's like interviews where he gets asked like basically oh, like, what do you think? And he's like, I'm a libertarian. And he wrote a couple of like books and essays to that effect. Um, he wrote this one book called The Diversity Myth with David Sachs, who is uh, another person who graduated from Stanford a few years after him and who is now also a kind of prominent member of like Silicon Valley, like venture capital, um, who was also a member of the review uh, in, the, in the mid nineties. And so a lot of that was kind of pushing back on the campus politics of, of the day, uh, which are pretty similar to the campus politics of now, I would say. So it, it, feels, it feels a bit weird, like to, to read something that you could have read like in, in an op-ed, but it was written, you know, like 25 years ago or, or something yeah. like that. And so a lot of these issues, you know, have been kind of continuing since then. Um, but I think there's this, there's this essay that a lot of people point to in 2009 that he wrote for like the Cato Institute's blog called, I think it's called like the Education of a Libertarian or something like that. And it's, it's when Teal starts to, to sound um, anti-democracy like explicitly, he, he, he like argues that like democratic institutions that like have very broad political participation are like corrosive to the health of like the state and society. And that we explicitly need to start like rolling these things back. And he like puts them in kind of libertarian terms, like a, the, the really notorious line from it is that he says that, you know, it's, it's like bad for the cause of liberty that women got the right to vote uh, because like women on average are less likely to vote for like libertarian leaning candidates than men are. Yeah. And so he, he, yeah, he just like, just like, that's the kind of thing where he just like, he loves like this, like very provocative, like shocker line, you know, that he like throws into an article. Um, and, and since then it's gotten kind of like more and more, uh, I don't, I don't know if the word is bizarre. <laughs> So, so do you think he still would describe himself as, as a libertarian? And then how does the Trump support sort of like fit into that paradigm? Because Trump, I mean, I guess you could read Trump in many ways. Some people like think, read him as like increasingly authoritarian and some people read him as like loosening control of the state just through kind of dis, dis, almost dysfunction. Um, but how does that fit in? So on like economic regulation, he definitely is a libertarian, like he wants the state to like, you know, basically stop, uh, I think what he would characterize as like hindering the ability of like entrepreneurs and founders from, you know, like like being great and like building great companies and, and adding value in, in that sense. But in, in other ways, like for example, on the issue of immigration, like the principal libertarian position on immigration is to like loosen immigration restrictions because like the state should not be in the business of like, determining like who can live where. Whereas Teal and, and Trump have both been, you know, very critical of like kind of lax immigration systems, particularly what they, uh, like with reference to what they would call like low skilled immigrants. Like I think Teal would be perfectly fine if we like, you know, imported a bunch of people on like H1Bs. 
you know, and just like let, you know, people who have like extensive like technological training into the industry or whatever. Um, but he, he is definitely very critical of, of like having, for example, like a lot of immigrants from like Latin America who are crossing the border. He doesn't really have any sympathy with, with their position. And in a lot of ways, it's, it's become extremely racialized. Like obviously Trump, you know, leans a lot on rhetoric of racial reaction when he's talking about immigration and when he's like conjuring the, the specters of these like brown hordes flooding across the border. And Teal, you know, has kind of in, in become increasingly like comfortable associating himself with straight up white nationalists. There's a, a recent article by uh, Ryan Mack, who is a, a reporter who has done a lot of uh, work on, on Teal over the years. Um, so there's this one from September where like it's titled Peter Teal met with a racist friend as he went all in on Trump. And, you know, Teal has also done stuff like he, in 2016, he was going to headline this conference in Turkey that has been historically associated with white nationalists, but he dropped out after there was like some negative media attention. And, and so it's, I think it's become increasingly clear that, you know, Teal, you know, being, being as generous as possible as I can be to Teal, he just, he does not see white nationalism as a deal breaker. So... You, you talked a lot in your, your original Stanford politics article about like how Teal almost uses ca campus politics, not collect people, but um, recruit people um, into his, I don't know, network of businesses. So wondering like part of Teal's power besides just like having influence in these companies is like funding. So like, I mean, it, it does sometimes feel like every single company in the Valley that you heard of somehow had some venture capital fund from, from Peter Thiel. So like, how does that influence like persist? And like, how, or like, how does Thiel wield this type of like political influence using this sort of like economic business influence? Yeah, so I think this is really fascinating and like a way that I think that's I think something that's been really understudied so Teal has not really been successful at all in persuading Silicon Valley to like flock to Trump or the Republican Party, other than, you know, I would say kind of this like small band of, of, of like count, I don't know, like counter revolutionaries, one, one might say, uh, who, who are definitely all in on Trump, but most <laughs> of Silicon Valley hates him. Um, but what Teal has been extremely successful in, in doing in, in Silicon Valley is like instilling or, or not not instilling but like helping to entrench this vision of the founder of a company as this kind of god emperor or silicon valley like long like long before teal you know what had influence you know thought that like the position of being the founder of the company was something that was extremely important and for like obvious reasons like the founder of a company is the person who creates this idea they instantiate it in in the world they're the person who's responsible for, for bringing about this, this great company that has like products that we all use. And how this idea can get instantiated into like corporate governance, which is like a material thing and not just like a floating ideology is something called a dual class share structure. So like in most companies in the United States that are, that are run as corporations, every share has one vote. So, you know, if I own like one share of General Electric, 
and you own one share of General Electric, then we both like have like the same amount of voting power uh, in terms of like shareholder resolutions and being able to like say like add or remove people to the board or whatever. But a lot of technology companies have a dual class share structure where, you know, maybe let's say we have a company with 100 shares, 90 shares are normal shares where, you know, one share, one vote or whatever. And the other 10 shares are this kind of super class of shares that get you like a very disproportionate amount of voting power. So Facebook has a dual class share structure. That means that Mark Zuckerberg uh, has a majority of the votes of all Facebook shares, even though he is not a majority shareholder of Facebook. Um, Palantir also has a dual class yeah. share structure. A lot of other t prominent technology companies, even like including like a lot of ones that like Teal is not formally affiliated with, have a dual class share structure. Um, but but he's been I think very important in kind of promoting the the parallel ideas of like one that that the founder is like deserving of being an absolute monarch in the domain of their company and two, like finding a way to like actually entrench this in the, the bylaws of the company itself. Mm -hmm. So, and then how, I mean, fa Facebook seems like the obvious example where like Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, I love, there's so many headlines. Mark Zuckerberg is, you know, king. And it, it, how, how does this play out then in terms of, I mean, I, I think the most obvious example with like Facebook is just like how resilient it has, maybe resilient is the right word, but like how entrenched it has been because Mark can just veto anything uh, when people campaign for him to change his policies. But like, how has this played out like in the wider ecosystem in terms of like what companies do and don't do? Yeah, so, so one of the venture capital funds that Teal is most closely identified with uh, because he like literally co-founded it uh, is called Founders Fund, and it like has the explicit like when they're when they're pitching themselves to companies, they explicitly pitch themselves as saying like, look, like all of these other VCs in the valley, you you know if you take an investment from them, they're gonna start muscling in on your turf in making decisions for the company. You know, they might even like remove you as CEO and install you know some drone that they like conjure out of nowhere because, you know, they just want some like adequate competent manager who will like play it safe with the company and make sure that their investment is like, you know, all, all locked up. But, you know, if you go with us, if you go with Founders Fund, you know, we will never interfere with your management of the company. So you will be able to like continue to enact your vision of how you want your company to work. And I think, you know, for, for a lot of people, that's like a very compelling pitch, right? Like it's, it's a compelling pitch because Teal has, you know, this biography as a person who became a billionaire off of being an entrepreneur himself, you know? So he, he is not, he did not just go directly into becoming a VC. Like he built his own companies first. And, you know, the Teal name is, is very important. And, and also is just this vote of confidence in, in you as a founder and you as a, as a manager and as this kind of like sovereign entity that <laughs> will like have dominion over, over this like, like, you know, little, little swath of, of the world. Um, and, and I don't know, I just think that like, 
this this ideology that Thiel has, he's expressed it in, in a bunch of different ways. One of which is in his book, Zero to One, which he co-wrote with Blake Masters, where he like spends a lot of time talking about how he thinks of the, the founder as this like almost like sacred figure. And in the, the, the one of the classes that he taught at Stanford uh, called CS183, you can look up the notes that Blake Masters took as a student in that class and in those notes, there is uh, a lecture, um, which I am trying to trying to pull up. Um, yeah, it's called Class 18, where the title of that class is Founder is Victim, Founder is God. Wow. And, and so, you know, like, Teal clearly, like, has this, like, whole ideology built up around this. And it's, like, very much built into the ideas that he gets from this philosopher named Rene Girard, who he has cited uh, many different times, including as his original inspiration for investing in Facebook. Like he claims like Rene Girard's like the vision for like mimetic society is what caused him to think that Facebook was going to be a very successful company. Um, and so I, what I think Thiel does is he takes his business success and then tries to pivot it into this like demonstration of the like philosophical superiority of his ideas. Mm. And that's been really successful uh, in terms of like establishing him as not just a, just a businessman, but as like, like philosopher king of like the technology industry. Interesting. Yeah, that sort of leads into my next question, which is like, I think you're right. Like the, the Peter Thiel, coming out in support of Trump was sort of a shock to the Valley. And I feel like most people in Silicon Valley are not, would, are not Trump supporters, or at least wouldn't say that they were. And yet, like, it's not just Peter Thiel, but Thiel seems to be, a, I don't know if I would say a more extreme example, but definitely a flavor of a very, like, specific type of Silicon Valley ideology, which is this libertarian, like, we made it on our own. Let's ignore the fact that the DOD invented the internet and gave us a lot of stuff. Oh, no, no. <laughs> like we did it. These were companies. This was us. Like we don't need the state's infrastructure. It's like, you know, men and men alone. And, you know, I, I say men deliberately. Um, and even though, and that, that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily translate into, into Trump support, but it certainly seems to fit in with like, Teal's ideology. So I wonder, like, especially with his relationship with founders, and, and this might, we'll, we might come back to, like, his influence in the companies that he founded, like PayPal and Palantir, but, like, he said specifically, like, I'm trying to find the exact quote, where he said something like, he founded Palantir, uh, he founded PayPal in order to get around government control of the current money in the currency system, which didn't end up working. But it definitely seemed to me then that, like, Facebook's Libra was a Peter Thiel idea with Mark Zuckerberg as a voice. But, um, you know, so like, do you see like Peter Thiel's, not not with necessarily like political party support, but do, like, do you see his like political ideology like influencing that Silicon Valley network in terms of like the projects they end up pursuing and like the vision that they have of the world? Yeah, so there's this uh, like, pejorative term that some people use called the conservative welfare state 
<laughs> in DC or if you're like a young conservative you can kind of float around between different projects that like they got you know some oil billionaire to finance and so you kind of have like a universal job guarantee but it like only applies to young conservatives and in in Silicon Valley there's I, this is like not not exactly the same thing but there's this definite like teal sphere of influence where if teal likes you and you can like demonstrate your your competence and like get into like his his good graces and get into his network like you can kind of hop around between different jobs at different teal affiliated companies venture capital firms nonprofits that he funds uh, and if you start uh, a company yourself, like he, you know, might invest in you as well. Like a big example of this is this company called Anderil, which was founded by Palmer Luckey. So Palmer Luckey um, was like in VR. And so his firm, Oculus, was acquired by Facebook, you know, where Teal is on the board. It was a, a major acquisition. Uh, it was big news. Um, and then Luckey, was uh you know kind of like accounts differ a bit but but i think it's kind of consensus at this point that lucky was forced out of facebook in in some way or another uh because lucky was getting involved in these like right-wing uh like campaigns on the internet that were pro-trump but it's like a bit vague what exactly happened uh but like the long story short of it is that lucky is no longer at Facebook. And then he started his own company, uh, Anderil, which is like a defense contracting firm, which wants to apply VR to, among other things, the southern border with Mexico. Mm. And so, you know, it's, it's very much a company that, you know, is like a political lightning rod. And Teal is an, a prominent investor in, uh, in Lucky. And so this is round two for him being an investor in like, I believe Teal also invested in Oculus um, before Facebook acquired it. So like if, you know, someone like that, well, I mean, Lucky is clearly a very talented entrepreneur. He, this is now the second time he has built a like a very highly valued company. And so obviously that's, that's important. Like Teal is not going to give you a ton of money if you just like fail all the time and like don't <laughs> do anything. Yeah. But, but it certainly helps that, that Lucky is like ideologically aligned with Teal and is kind of in this, this sphere of influence. Then another question that is, is I, I thought that was interesting about, you know, Facebook forcing out um, people and, and it does seem like their Facebook is one, but like maybe Google is another example of a place like in these tech corporations where the like workforce, I don't know how you necessarily would, um, define that like seems to be more left-leaning or more democratic and and are upset so like facebook you know the, the um i can't remember his name but the guy who was friends with brett kavanaugh and oh, joel kaplan joel kaplan there thank you um you know like employees got quite upset about it so it seems almost i don't know so, so there was another article about this i think in, in the new yorker when the clubhouse thing happened um uh, about the the fact that there there seems to be like a divide in Silicon Valley between like the more democratic like workforce and this like more libertarian like founders like do you think that's a do you think that's true do you think that's a fair characterization in terms of some of the dynamics that are happening like within corporations 
Yeah, I think there's definitely a, a consensus in Silicon Valley, I would say around social liberalism, where, you know, I think like, for example, if you were a person who was like a religious traditionalist and you're like pro-life and like anti-gay marriage, like that's extremely rare in Silicon Valley. That's, that's like single digits. Um, but there, I think there very much is a divide in between kind of a, a broadly liberal workforce and this like executive class that was described very well in this like series of papers by Greg Ferenstein, where he like interviews a lot of Silicon Valley CEOs, founders, like top executives. And his conclusion based on these interviews is that Silicon Valley has this distinctive ideology. I, I don't know if he uses this term, but I would call it progressive neoliberalism, where they're, they're socially liberal and they are fine with the welfare state, really, in, in some senses, uh, where they like really break part, like break from like kind of like a, a progressive left is in their view of what the government's relationship to be, should be to entrepreneurs and also to labor. So they think of like the, the government as having the job of facilitating entrepreneurs who are going off and, and building companies, you know, making sure that there are not government regulations that hinder entrepreneurship, uh, making sure that there are not like unions that, you know, would quote unquote hinder entrepreneurship. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Stuff like that. And so that I think is, is something where you would see a, a, a much larger divide uh, in between the Silicon Valley executive class and the, the kind of median like software engineer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So that brings like, really brings to mind, um, I know you tweeted out that uh, the uh, the New York Magazine article about Palantir. Um, so pa which Palantir is another Peter Thiel, <laughs> to badly quote Mark Zuckerberg, another Peter Thiel production. Um, uh, but I thought the article was interesting. I mean, I think it had a lot of drawbacks. Um, and I should say for our listeners, we'll drop the link to this article and everything that's been mentioned in the show notes. Um, but this, this article on Palantir attempts to both describe what Palantir does, which I think is quite hard um, to do, or, um, or the public sometimes doesn't seem to understand it. But then it also juxtaposes like Peter Thiel and this current CEO, Alex Karp, who have like, it seems almost just like polar opposite political views and like views of government and views of the state. And yet they're working together in a sense, like in, in Palantir. So I'm, I mean, I'm one curious what you thought about the article and then like two, like, did that, does that relationship between someone, I don't know how you would describe Alex Karp's ideology, just like. His whole, his whole thing. <laughs> um, yeah, like, Karp. How do you bring those together? Yeah, so, so Karp and Teal met when they were roommates at Stanford Law. And so, the the article in the New York Times magazine, I think it like it captures a lot about you know the history of Palantir and it's very informative. I also think in in some senses it was like excessively deferential to Palantir's account of itself. <laughs> I agree. Uh, yeah, I think the the title of it is like does does Palantir see, see too much? much? 
Um, and right, so I guess like the quick, the quick story on like who Alex Karp is, is that after Karp graduated from law school, he decided to get a PhD in social theory. And so he went to Germany to get it, like this, this doctorate where he at one point studied with, with Habermas. Habermas, yeah. Yeah, he like is fully in, you know, on this, on the like very deep, like social, um, like philosophies that are like kind of heavily overlapping with like different types of Marxism. He has described himself in the past interviews as a socialist, which I just don't believe. I just don't believe that. Oh, um, and yeah, so then he like ends up being the CEO of, of Palantir and Teal kind of calls him in to like run the company um, because Teal is important to kind of like the original idea for, for Palantir. Like it comes out of uh, PayPal kind of anti-hacking software and like kind of protection software and just general data analytics. Like, like the short way to describe Palantir is that it's a data analytics company. Yeah. Um, that, that aligns a lot of what Palantir is doing, but that's like fundamentally what's going on there. And so, so CARP gets brought in to like be the management uh, while Teal, you know, goes off to, to be like a philosopher king <laughs> uh, and 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 VC extraordinaire, and like the, the, the impression that that I get from from Carp, and at least in the way that Carp chooses to present himself in this article, is that Carp is like drawing all of this attention to his like zany habits, <laughs> and you know he's just like a just a weird guy, you know he he's like kind of this like monk like figure who like just so happens to have ended up as the CEO of this like multi-billion dollar highly controversial company and I mean I I don't know to what extent this is just like weird PR being put on by Palantir but um certainly I I would think Palantir in terms of of kind of Teal's influence on it like it, it's very much is a, a Teal production and Carp will also talk about this he was like Carp recently moved the company's headquarters to Denver out of Palo Alto. And he has talked about how this is because, at least in part, that he thinks that Silicon Valley is too liberal and that it is kind of like too disapproving of contracting with government security agencies, which you know presumably includes like ICE and and various like national security agencies. And like you know, the, Teal is not the person going out here and doing these interviews, but that's very clearly something that Teal agrees with. Like Teal is all in favor of, you know, having these militarized intelligence agencies, you know, doing their best to, you know, like throw out undocumented immigrants and like have like police crackdowns on like the specter of disorder. And so, like, I mean, I don't know to what degree Teal is involved in the, like, high-level management of Palantir. Like, he's definitely not involved in, like, the day-to-day -day management of Palantir. But I also don't think that, like, Teal has to, like, get involved himself personally all of the time for the other people who are at Palantir to, like, know what Teal would want to do mm -hmm. and kind of implicitly follow those directives, even if Teal is not you know, like physically in the building talking to people. 
I mean, I guess, yeah, the other thing about the article was just like, one was, yeah, the power that, <laughs> I mean, this is a question of a lot of Silicon Valley companies, which is that like, is the power that they claim to have true? Um, how, so I guess in that sense, like, how would, what would you describe as like what Palantir's doing? And is it effective? Not, not on a like, what does it do with the data analytics and thing, but like, how does Peter Thiel think about like how Palantir fits into his ideology, like a more political vision almost of like what he wants the world to look like? So Thiel will, will cite like two philosophers like pretty constantly in like uh, these interviews going back decades. One is Rene Girard, who I like talked about earlier. And the other is Leo Strauss who is this like very famous and important political philosopher who was at U Chicago for a long time in the early 1900s. And Strauss, like among many other things, is known for this, this kind of approach that he advocates for the way that politics should work, where he approves of this class of you know, kind of enlightened statesmen who tell noble lies uh, to the people in order to like get done what needs to get done. And, you know, I, I think there's a lot of debate over how effective Palantir actually is and, you know, whether Palantir can really kind of like merit the big game that gets, that it like can attract um, but, you know, if, I think if Thiel were to try to sell a philosophical story about why Palantir is so important, it is that Palantir is this tool that enables, like, our country's leaders to, you know, become, a, like, functionally, like, omniscient in, and um, mm. knowing, like, what, what, what are the empirics on the ground, and this will guide them in their, like, wise judgments. And the fact that Palantir is so secretive, the fact that it in, in, insists on, you know, virtually no public information existing about the company, um, the fact that it exists, insists on, you know, having like so many people being like NDA'd up um, is, is reminiscent of like how Thiel has talked about Strauss in the interviews. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't, I don't know to what degree, you know, Teal would explicitly cite this. Uh, he does talk a lot about, about how he thinks that, you know, Palantir is very useful for the national security state in general and for the military and, you know, for order, other associated kind of law and order agencies. But, you know, Teal, Teal in general loves to cast his companies in this kind of grander vision. Uh, and Palantir is, is no exception to that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So then how does, this is my always my like question about Palantir and how Peter Thiel sees it, which is like, how does this like the like libertarian air quotes, like ideology of Thiel like square with like a company that's like basically just like contracting with big government? Yeah, this is where I think like the like Thiel's like former self-profession as a libertarian just kind of breaks down completely. 
just even in the raw economic sense of running a company where, you know, most of the revenue of the company is being derived from government contracts. Like you could try to make the case that like, you know, national security is sufficiently important that like, you know, it's even from a libertarian perspective, you should still like, you know, fund it to the tune of many hundreds of billion dollars a year or whatever. But I just, I don't think that's plausible. Um, in, in general, I would say, I think Teal, Teal is always doing this mix of his own personal financial interests, as well as the kind of like lofty philosophizing that often, you know, just, just so happens to, to dovetail with his personal financial interests. Uh, and in any given situation, it's often kind of hard to, to disentangle the two of them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, this also brings me back to, so, um, Brexit is my other, um, and British politics is my other uh, great love, I should say, or great hatred. And so Fintan O'Toole has a really interesting book where he talks about this relationship between like some of the Brexiteers, so like Jacob Rees-Mogg and, and Peter Thiel, who has a book where he tries to relate this, this Brexit project of like pulling away from the EU and sort of like destroying state structures with like the Silicon Valley elite. And that one of the things that also strikes that strikes me about like thinking about that characterization is like the Silicon Valley elite doomsday preppers and Silicon Valley in general, I find like even, even not just like the executive elite, elite tends to talk about like in terms of like, can we remove ourselves from society? So there was some minutes released from like a Facebook employee meeting with Mark Zuckerberg, where somebody says like, can Facebook, buy an island and all the Facebook employees please move to the island during the pandemic and Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, Teal has funded a lot of like seasteading <laughs> stuff. Like seasteading is exactly the kind of project that he like loves to like associate with. Yeah, exactly. And it seems to me that that's a very, um, the, fl the floating oil tankers, like seems to me like a very deliberate, like let's get away from the state, um, like capital S state. Um, same with like the getting to the moon stuff. I mean, all of these people are also really obsessed with like funding moon travel. So like, I guess, like, how does that, again, it seems like such an opposite thing from what Palantir is doing. But, but, but so anyways, I'm just curious, do you think that is, do you think that at all is a real characterization of how Peter Thiel thinks? Yeah, I mean, in Thiel's, in Thiel's like kind of personal life, a lot of that has been you know, him, like, outrunning political institutions. <laughs> um, like, there's this, like, mini scandal that, that, you know, occurred in New Zealand a few years ago when it was discovered that Teal had secretly bought citizenship there. And so, you know, now he owns, like, a bunch of property in New Zealand. So he is, like, one of those, like, like New Zealand, you know, kind of doomsday preppers, as, as you said. Um, and he, like, can can do this because, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways, even though, you know, he's like supporting Trump and he's kind of making these like rhetorical nods to the idea that, you know, like say this like kind of like globalist class has, you know, like destroyed, you know, the, the, the roots that bind us together and that that is like the great disaster of our time. Teal is also like the quintessential cosmopolitan elite like he has homes in hawaii uh like sf la new york you know god knows wherever else um 
and and you know he like him him citing the sovereign individual make i think makes a lot of sense um that that he you know in his personal life has been able to kind of extricate himself from geographic and political institutions that everybody else has to abide by and as to what that means for kind of like his his like overall project which i am perpetually kind of i am like perpetually unsure of what his overall project <laughs> actually is i i always i often think that i have a guess and then i'm just like wrong or maybe he's <laughs> just a total hypocrite in every way like i don't really know um but like that that detachment project is is something that he has taken a lot of care into putting into practice in his own life mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it reads to you as more of like a personal backup plan than as part and parcel of like a preferred political vision i mean i think it, it, do it definitely dovetails with with like this like political agenda um where i mean he's he like has complained constantly about how California treats the technology industry. Like he's like, you know, California, like they're they're taxing the tech industry too much. They are not doing enough to like support the tech industry. You know, these are the like the innovators, these are the people who are like holding up the entire state of California without Silicon Valley, California would collapse. And California like doesn't properly appreciate, you know, what it what it's got going here. Um that's that's not that's a claim that's definitely not exclusive to deal like I think there's a lot of people in the tech industry who including a lot of liberals in the tech industry who like share that position um but you know i think teal teal has definitely gone a lot further than most people in making that principle live in the way that he conducts his own personal affairs mm -hmm. and then i guess two kind of final questions. The first is like, you know, it was a kind of a big deal in 2016 when he was the first, like, I think he was the first Silicon, like, prominent person in Silicon Valley to like fund Trump. And he certainly gave him a lot of money, especially at like tough times for the Trump campaign. So how looking both looking back on like, the past four years, and like, like, what do you think that influence at a federal level of government has been? And like, where do you predict that going in the future? I think this has been like the great disappointment for Teal in the past few years where, you know, he, he got on the ground floor with Trump. He like got a lot of influence with Trump. He was very important in the presidential transition he was important in hiring for the presidential transition, as well as early hiring in like administrative agencies. And over the years, there's been a lot of reporting that that's come out. Um, a lot of it by Ryan Mack at, at BuzzFeed, as, as well as elsewhere, that Teal has been disappointed by Trump's performance in office. And even though he's continued to donate you know, some money and he continues to donate to a lot of Republicans that he prefers. Uh, he just has not been a major presence in the White House in the way that I think a lot of people expected him to be. He like, like I filed a bunch of FOIA requests on a lot of people who are close to Teal, who 
became staffers in various agencies in the, the Trump administration. And most of those have come up like pretty empty, at least as to the question of whether those staffers are using official government means of communication to talk to Teal or his representatives. Um, there, there has been some interesting stuff like I, like one FOIA that I filed that appears in uh, Ryan Mack's piece on Teal meeting with white nationalists is Teal's role in selecting the director of the National Institute of Health, Francis Collins, who is actually an Obama holdover, uh, which is very rare in the Trump administration. And, and so like, he's, he's been able to exercise influence in that sense, and I think probably been able to exercise more influence in technology policy. Like there are, there are I believe the United States chief technology officer is like an alum of one of his companies, uh, Michael Kratzios, I think. And so stuff like that, like he's been able to leave a mark, but it's, it's orders of magnitude less than I think a lot of people, you know, either hoped slash feared for. <laughs> Um, and then for a final question, I know you said that Peter Thiel, sometimes his political vision stumps you, but where, where would you look, where do you recommend we look out for where Peter Thiel crops up next? <laughs> oh, that's the thing. It's like, you just never know what this dude is going to do. Like the, like the Gawker story is so crazy. Um, I guess, like, for, for, for listeners who are not familiar, like, a, like, Gawker was this website that was, like, kind of like a gossip rag type of website known for being like, mean to people. <laughs> um, uh, and just, like, you know, it had a lot of reporting and a lot of commentary that was usually done in this, like, caustic house style. And they ran this report um, where they like publicly outed Peter Thiel as gay. And Thiel publicly said that this, like, you know, he was, he was very distraught by this. He objected to this. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of ethical issues with like outing somebody as, as gay against their will. Uh, I want to like respect that. But I also think that in this specific case, you know, there's a lot of evidence that Thiel didn't actually care that, that Gawker publicly outed him as gay and what he was actually mad at was Gawker had run this other series of articles making fun of the poor financial performance of his hedge fund. Interesting. And yeah, like there's like, there's like quotes from people who are, it's always sourced to people like close to Teal or whatever saying that like, you know, Teal told them in private that, you know, like what actually, what he was actually mad at was, you know, they were like making fun of him more or less for like not doing a good job for, running this for business fund. performance. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so he like found this convenient excuse um, to go after Gawker and several years later in an unrelated lawsuit against Gawker that was filed by Hulk Hogan, the, the former you know, professional wrestler, um, Hulk Hogan got his lawyers paid for by Teal and the legal strategy in that lawsuit was not one that maximized kind of likelihood of success for Hogan, but it was one that kind of maximally tried to like extract money out of Gawker and it ended up putting Gawker into bankruptcy. And this was all kept secret throughout the entire trial. It came to light after the trial due to reporting by Ryan Mack and 
uh, Matt Drange, I believe, at, at, at Forbes. And so, like, this, this guy will, you know, he'll hold on to grudges for years. He'll, he, he has the patience and the money to play really long games with the things that he cares about and the causes that he chooses to pursue. And so I, there's not a doubt in my mind that he is currently up to something big. I have no idea what it is. We might not ever find out what it is or might find out about it years from now. But, you know, he, he is not content to just, like, sit on this, you know, pot of gold. Uh, he, he, like, wants to put it to use. Oh. Well, that's a perfect note to end on. Well, th- thank you so, so much for coming on to talk about Peter Thiel. Um, I think it's been such an illuminating discussion, especially for me and hopefully for our listeners. So thank you so much, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank you so much again to Andrew Ganado for coming on to the Anti-Dystopians to talk to us about Peter Thiel. All of the articles that Andrew and I mentioned in this episode will be available in the show's show notes, so be sure to check them out. If you want to hear more about the politics of technology or how to stop the world from becoming a dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Anti-Dystopians.